are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. We have a great episode for you today because we have a return guest. You know what that means? It means they're a good guest. That's why I'm having them back on um, from episode 153. So uh, like third, fourth year of the show. It's been a while. I'm putting together the uh, Mind Under Matter Campout Festival. I reached out to uh, a lot of my uh, favorite guests and, and people that I know study things that, uh, that, that the public is very much interested in. And I uh, just in in trying to gather names and things, and also just to uh, just to catch up with people and see what was going on. And I'm so glad that I did because Cassie Holmes, who's joining me again today, has a book coming out September sixth, which is already available for pre-order. Happy happier hour, sorry, happier hour. How to Beat Distraction, Expand Your Time, and Focus on What Matters Most. Thank you so much, Cassie, for joining me again. Thanks for having me. It's great to see you again. And I, this is exciting. Are you in the same home? Didn't I come to your house when when I interviewed you? I feel like I, or did I come to your office? Uh, we did it remember. in my office at UCLA okay. last time, and Never now mind. I am in my house, but it's actually a different house than I would have been in yeah. had you come to my house before. Right. <laughs> um, well, I'm very excited to talk to you about your book. I don't know um, if you know this, but you might be in luck. Um, happiness is a thing that's like people have really seemed to be caring about um, lately. <laughs> it seems, it yeah. seems like it seems like uh yeah people people want to get more of this stuff and so how to beat distractions expand your time and focus on what matters most let me tell you Cassie usually i i go in um to a bookstore and i browse and sometimes i see a title like that i'm like I don't know. There's a lot of self-help stuff out there. And like some of it is pretty uh, wishy-washy and sometimes saying a lot of the same things. And anytime that ha- that's why I love interviewing scientists, because I always feel like I get so many um, because I like fact based evidence of everyone wants happiness. Everyone wants to sell happiness. And even if you're well-intended in trying to sell people on the idea of how they can get more productive or happy or whatever, and unless you have, uh, you know, some actual rigorously tested peer reviewed things and have really researched the topic, it's just really hard to figure out what, <laughs> what direction to go out there. Of course we all want more of this stuff. So how did you, can you tell people a little bit about your, um, your background and how you get got into this field of study. Yeah. And it's so funny that um, you're like, happiness, of course we want it. And I used to have to, as a 
professor in a business school, I used to actually have to make a case for why we should care about happiness. Um, and then, you know, I always start by sharing all of the data, as you said, everything I sort of say is based off of data of why it's so important for organizations. But I don't have to make that case anymore. I mean, after the last couple of years um, where we have sort of suffered through this pandemic and you see anxiety increasing, depression increasing, um, not only see, many have experienced that themselves and the great resignation. So organizations having a hard time retaining employees Nobody takes happiness for granted anymore. So I don't even have to motivate it. Um, and yet it is something that I've been studying for over uh, a dozen years. So my background, I'm a, uh, I did my PhD in a business school. Actually, I've been at business schools throughout. Um, trained as a social psychologist, um, focusing on um, the benefit of focusing on time as our most precious resource with happiness. And when I say happiness, what I mean is how you feel in the day-to-day, as well as how you feel about, there's this cognitive element, how do you feel about your life overall? How satisfied are you with your life overall? Um, And I uh, teach it, my first job out of my PhD was, uh, I was a professor at Wharton, and uh, have since moved uh, back to Southern California um, where sunshine makes me happy. So I'm driven by happiness. And now I'm a a professor at UCLA um, Anderson School of Management. And though I've been studying the role of time uh, and how it um, relates to and contributes to our happiness, um, being in a business school and in a as a marketing professor, I traditionally taught marketing, but then I was like, dude, I study how important our time is and how to make the most of it. And I was like, I need to start spending my teaching time in a way that is um, sort of more in line with what I really care about. So a few years ago, I developed a course called Applying the Science of Happiness to Life Design that I've been teaching to my MBAs, our executive MBAs, and it is exactly that, taking the science. So as you noted, this isn't just like, it sounds might sound like a self-help book, and it does help you, it improves your life, but it is not just my opinion. It is based off of science, mm-hmm. my research, as well as those of, that of my colleagues. And what the course did and does is applying the science so that my MBA students can implement the learnings and I have these assignments that they have to do to experience the the impact of these quote-unquote interventions um, on improving how they feel in their days as well as designing their lives both their personal you know their career as well as um, their professional life as well as personal life to be most in line with their values and um, therefore um, hopefully fulfilling. So that in seeing the wonderful effect on my students, um, I was like, gosh, there are only so many spots in, you know, the classroom. And I want to sort of relay these learnings so that more people can implement and benefit from these 
again, empirically based insights to their lives. But fortunately for readers of Happier Hour, it is not a textbook. It is not a, doesn't feel like an academic read. I, it is, there is very much story in it. Unfortunately, you hear a lot about my stories, but that is just so that the data feels more relevant and resonates. Yeah, I I found out when I first started integrating science into my um, my act because uh, I I started as kind of a absurdist comedian, I guess. I mean, maybe some of my stuff was personal, but it, it was mostly just a very kind of oddball absurdity sort of stuff. And and then so I I never shared that much personal stuff i just didn't care i didn't think other people would care i started integrating um science into my act and putting together things getting some stuff off the ground and and then i realized that probably the best example of this was i had written a whole act about um the evolution of kind of uh negative emotions and why we experience pain and that sort of thing and and um and put together an act that was working well, but then I broke both of my feet <laughs> and I integrated that into my act. And the, the act of making it personal just made that same exact material resonate just so much more with people. And, you know, we're, we're social animals and everything. And so as much as I just sort of love nerding out on uh, uh, hearing about cool studies and everything, it, 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 it makes a difference people hear about uh, you know people's personal lives yeah i um learned that in this uh writing process so this is my first um book for a popular audience and so i've been trained to write academic papers right mm-hmm. and my first chapter that i submitted to my editor um at Simon and Schuster she was like um no. <laughs> like and I had spent 6 months on that first chapter, but what I had written was basically something that could be peer reviewed that my mm-hmm. academic colleagues I'm like, here's my argument and here are all the studies that are supporting my argument and she was like, no offense, nobody will want to read this and I'm like, oh, well, that was six months lost. And, you know, I had sort of few moments of like, oh my gosh, what have I gotten myself into? But then I learned, fortunately, how over the next, you know, uh, year and a half, how to actually tell the stories that bring those findings to life. So it was a very interesting process of a sort of inverting the way that I had learned to write for academically, and it's actually not about making your argument and then supporting it, is about telling a story that someone cares about, and then you conclude by making the point with your study. And mm-hmm. that was a learning. Um, so, but it was a fun learning. You know, this is a long career that we have, and this is a new endeavor. And now I, I've, you know, I'm really excited and proud of the book because those that have read it are like, oh my gosh, it was really fun to read. And Mm -hmm. in addition, um, they can apply the insights and thereby be happier. 
Have you have you felt that it's changed some of your teaching as well once you started putting more personal things into the book? You started doing that in your lectures? Yeah. And yeah. also seeing um, among Positive my results. students, yeah, they, they're more engaged, but also those are the stories are what they remember. So they'll like come to me, you know, a couple of years later and it's not like, oh my gosh, that study on how when you have limited time, um, you know, people savor more. That was really cool. They're like, oh, your coffee dates with your daughter. Are you guys still doing those? And mm -hmm. it's I. Use the example of having my coffee dates with my seven-year-old to explain this, and so that's the stuff that makes it sticky. So mm -hmm. it's, yeah. Well, I know people are eager to unlock all of the secrets to happiness, but I, I, I want to <laughs> go back to one one thing really quick um, that you mentioned, which I, I would love for you to comment on um, why you think that there was some resistance to happiness research kind of 15 years ago or, or whenever you kind of or 12 years ago you said you started kind of going in this direction and there was it's a lot more welcome now than it was over a decade ago yeah and that's even sort of the research um over the decade ago but it was only you know four years ago that i was trying to get a happiness course passed in a, the curriculum committee at my business school so that was um you know i had to make a big case for it um i think that the reason well i think at the business school it was hard to make a case because um the argument was like this is a business school, you know, it's not about how people feel that's sort of a frivolous thing. And I think that historically too, to your answer, your, to answer your question about research, the term happy, happy and happiness sounds really frivolous. Mm -hmm. And um, it sounds like it's not important, particularly when psychology to that point had traditionally been focusing on really serious things like combating mental health issues like anxiety and depression. And um, the shift that happened was recognizing that it's not just about, um, there is not only need for bringing people from a really unhappy state to an okay state, that there is actually, there can be a lot of good of pe taking people from an okay state and pushing them to, um, borrowing Marty Seligman's term, um, to a flourishing state. So can we make it so that people feel more fulfilled um, in their days, in their lives, um, are more engaged, that their relationships are better? And so it's sort of pushing um, even farther. But still the term happiness sounds a little frivolous, but it's absolutely what it means is absolutely not frivolous. We want to feel good in our days. We want to feel satisfied in our lives. And that, to the extent that we do, has really positive ramifications across our lives. So it actually makes us better in our work. It makes us more creative, 
creative, more adaptive in our problem solving. It makes us more engaged with our organization, more helpful to um, our coworkers. Um, with respect to our interpersonal relationships, when we are happy, we are better to our partners. We like other people more. We are liked by other people more. It also helps us with respect to health. So studies show that when people feel happier, their immune functioning goes up, their Reactions to physiological stressors go down. Um, it's associated with longevity. <laughs> so it's not like the sort of term sounds like flippant, like, oh, wouldn't it be nice to be cheery and happy? But that's actually not what we're addressing. We are addressing the extent to which people feel good and satisfied in the lives that we are living, right? Mm. So, but Again, now that the pandemic has shown us that we can absolutely not take our happiness for granted, then it's like, oh my gosh, how do we how do we do this thing? Um, and in particular, my focus and my work is on the role of time, which is another thing we no longer take for granted because it. My research shows that as people get older, they start recognizing that their time in life is limited. And therefore, they're more deliberate in how they spend it and are more apt to savor sort of ordinary moments. But this pandemic has shown all of us, no matter how old we are, that in fact, our lives are finite. They are fragile. Then our time is precious. And so while I've been studying this for, you know, a dozen years, like I said, now everyone is trying to figure out not only how to be happier, but how do we spend our hours and our time in ways that feel worthwhile? And so that's what I get to do in my book. I'm like, well, I've been studying this and I have it for you. <laughs> that's very cool. So all you need to do is remind people of death and their own mortality over and over again. And eventually <laughs> they come around to this happiness stuff maybe being important. Um, well, I mean, you say it jokingly, but actually it is, it's not so much about highlighting death. It's about recognizing that our lives are finite. And so how yeah. do we make the most of the life, our, the lives that we have? Right. Um, so would you, would you say that this is a, th this is maybe because I've, it, you, you kind of, you kind of touched on, um, this sort of idea of, of positive psychology, which is a little bit of a newer field and science having a history of focusing on trying to fix things and looking at what is broken and how to, how to get broken things to being normal. And then instead, well, what if we can just take a thing that's working fine and how do you make it better? And, and, uh, but do you, do you think that, um, because positive psychology has now been around for a bit, do you think that it's, something like a business school is just that much harder to um or to to kind of takes a bit longer to come around when if you sort of look at the history um of labor from anything going you know as dark as slavery for example but in even into the industrial revolution where it took a long time for uh, people don't get work breaks because because businesses finally decided like you know what we should be nice and give them breaks they realized that they couldn't have people just exhausted all of the time and they would make more mistakes and and everything else and 
Um, I, you know, the employees that I work with, I, I used to remind them every day, I don't care about your happiness. I sort of pay you money, just get the job done. Um, but that's maybe not the best <laughs> approach um, for businesses necessarily. Right. Yeah. I mean, there is a, absolutely a business case to be made for making sure your employees are happier. So, um, and this has become very much something that in organizations are realizing that they have to address be, with this great resignation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that is, people are leaving the workforce um, because they are not happy in what it was and what it is. And so um, uh, from an organizational standpoint or a business standpoint, because um, that's really your question, is it has, the research shows it and it has become very apparent even for those who are not in tune with the research that when employees are happier, as I mentioned, like they are more committed. They are more engaged. You see that they perform better at work. And yes, job satisfaction is a very significant determinant of life satisfaction. But as you said, even if the boss person doesn't care about life satisfaction, they do care about job satisfaction because that's what's going to retain them. That is so that they don't leave your organization and then you have to figure out about hiring someone else, training someone else. So for a retention story, it is um, helpful for organizations. Also for a recruitment story. Um, you know, now there are more um, sort of platforms where organizations get rated by their employees in terms of how happy and satisfied they are in the job. And to the extent that you want to recruit talent, you also want a good rating. You want to sort of take care of your employees. You see also that when employees are happier, there is reduced absenteeism, um, which also translates into an improved bottom line. So all of this points to businesses. From a business standpoint, uh, employers should take into account, even if they're not nice and they don't care about their employees' happiness, from there's a business case to be made that they should take it into account and institute policies that are supportive of people feeling happy in their jobs so that they're then, again, engaged and productive and will stick around. That's... I. I, I... I, I I hope for a for a world where there's a, for where where um you know CEOs or whatever that are trying to cut costs and and uh, and be efficient and everything that they that there's like this kind of Machiavellian happiness strategy like how can we make our employees happier that would be I, know, a, <laughs> I love that idea of like the evil boss like you know strategizing about happiness love it. yeah yeah <laughs> uh so i would love if you could um i i think a good place to start with your book maybe you could because you've you've given us um uh the the gist a little bit could you maybe break down maybe start with breaking down an outline or, or yeah. go through the chapters or break it in a bit whichever i'll let you stare the ship a little bit uh yeah. here and then and i can um sort of motivate it by um 
how I motivated the book and sort of my endeavor, um, which started uh, with me earlier in my career. Um, and I remember this day very vividly. And I was a sort of pre-tenure um, at uh, Wharton um, in Philly. And I was working my butt off. I had just had a baby at this four-month-old. And I was invited to give a talk um, up in New York. And so being pre-tenure, I was like, yes, of course, I have to do this. And so I leave at super early in the morning so I can get up to New York so I don't get those morning cuddles with my little one on the way out the door. I am giving my presentation in between back-to-back meetings. There's the colleague dinner afterwards. And I am rushing yelling at the cab driver. And as you all, everyone knows, like New York City cab drivers are already driving too fast. And I'm like yelling, drive faster. I need to make the train. It was the last late night train that would get me home um, to Philly. And I did make the train, but sitting on the train as I was um, looking out the window and it's sort of the dark, um, you know, houses and trees whizzing by. And I was exhausted and I was like, oh my God, life is passing fast. And I don't know if I can keep up. Like between job pressures, wanting to be a good parent, wanting to be a good partner, wanting to be a good friend, wanting my house not to be super gross. So I have, you know, chores that I need to do. It was like too much to do. Please don't remind me about chores. (laughs) (laughs) It just felt like there was too much to do and not enough time to do it. And that feeling, that acute feeling is what we refer to as being time poor um, in the literature. So time poverty, again, is this acute feeling of having too much to do and not enough time to do it. And it has these really negative effects. I conducted a national poll that shows that nearly half of Americans feel time poor. And this is bad because our research also shows that people who are time poor are less healthy, they're less likely to exercise, they're less kind, less likely to, you know, spend time on others, less confident, and less happy. And at that time, I was like, I'm going to give up my career. The solution to this terrible state of time poverty is I'm going to quit my job. Because surely, if I had a whole lot more time, I would be happier, right? But being the scientist, I was like, I need to sort of take this question to data. Um, So I recruited a couple of my favorite collaborators, Hal Hirschfield and Marissa Sharif. And I've had Hal on the show before. He's he's awesome. Yeah. Um, And we tested what is the relationship between the amount of discretionary time people have in their life satisfaction. And the pattern of results was really revealing. It was an upside down U shape. So on one hand, yes, having too little time, those folks are unhappy. That was me, right? The time for. But on the other side of the arc, the there people who had a whole lot of discretionary time were also unhappy. And so that is informative, is telling me, okay, if I quit my job and I had a whole lot of time to do whatever I wanted, you know, relaxing on a, you know, a sunny island somewhere, then I actually wouldn't be happier. 
Um, and that was really informative. So instead this of- This is a and, reality show, Sad Island. It's just <laughs> a bunch of attractive people on a gorgeous island and you just keep them there long enough with no tasks. They always give them tasks and things like that to do on those. Wait, you this give is them a real no show? No, I'm saying I'm pitching oh, it as a show. this is our next uh, show. Yeah, right? this is you and I, the show that we're pitching. Um, <laughs> and you put them on it instead of like the games and the tasks and you're trying to survive and all the stuff that's occupying their time. Nothing. You have, you have nothing to do for yeah. a very long time. And Honestly, see what that would be the most boring show ever because <laughs> people would be so bored. Yeah. It would show exactly this effect. They'd be like looking great, really tan, you know, well rested, well exercised. They have their beverages. But they're bored out of their mind after like day three, you know, mm -hmm. of being on this reality show. Uh, week three, week three. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so that led me to try to figure out, okay, so it's not about having a whole lot more time. It's really going to be this question of how to spend the time that we have for greater satisfaction. And that has been what propelled my research since and is sort of the substance of the book. How do we invest the time that we have and the answers and we can get into these. Um, and there's nuance to all of this, but, and there's like strategies for the little pieces of it. Um, but it's really about what are the activities that are worthwhile, that are worth investing time in the hours of your day in and also, how do you engage in those activities while you're spending them so that those activities have as much of a positive effect as possible on how you experience your days and on your satisfaction with your life overall? Um, so that's sort of the crux of it, is how do we identify for ourselves what are those activities that are worthwhile? Um, and then sort of work with those. <laughs> and then also, how do we engage in those activities? Mm. Do you want me to yes. talk about each of those? All right. Yeah, so, yeah, that would be wonderful. Um, so in terms of figuring out how to um, identify the times that are worth spending, um, uh, and I activity or an exercise that I uh, walk folks through um, is time tracking. So basically for you as an individual, over the course of a week, and I actually suggest two weeks, so it's more um, sort of uh, it captures your full set of uh, sort of day-to-day -day activities. For each um, half hour, write down what you're doing as well as rate on a 10 point scale, how you feel front, like while doing it. And what this does is at the end of the week or two weeks, you have this like personalized data set um, that you can look at and pull out, okay, what are those activities that got my highest ratings? And in terms of like rating happiness, it's not just like, oh, this is pleasurable. It's like, holistically, how did it make you feel? How satisfying, fulfilling, how energizing, how calming, you know, like it might be on any of those dimensions of happiness. 
Um, but you can identify, pull out, what are those activities that are your happiest? What are those activities that are your least happy? And actually looking across your happiest activities, what are the commonalities? And so you can identify not just sort of the specific activity that it might be worthwhile for you, but the aspects of the activities that are really fulfilling. In addition to this sort of helpful identification process, you can also see how much time you're spending on your various activities, which can be quite revealing. Mm -hmm. um, in particular, if you find out that you're spending a whole bunch of time on an activity that you don't actually have to do and is not even all that happy on your own rating, like for my students in doing this, the observation is often watching TV or playing video games or scrolling social media. That it's like, oh my gosh, these busy students, they're working towards their MBA and they're working full time, super busy, yet spend a dozen hours that week scrolling social media. And yeah. it doesn't even make them ha that happy because it gets like a rating of a four out of a 10. Mm. Meanwhile, they're like too busy to do activities that do contribute to, you know, like our nines and tens, like meeting up with a friend for dinner after work. But it's like too busy for that, that happy thing. But it's like what you see is like just how much time and not wasted from my, like telling you should not waste your time. You shouldn't do social media or whatever that activity is. But it's like, oh my gosh, taking stock of I'm spending time on activities that I don't even need to do and aren't even that enjoyable or fun. And it's mm. like, okay, now how can I sort of reallocate um, those hours to the more positive activities? Do you also, think, do you think yeah. part of the problem is, is that they maybe weren't following, um, like here we are on Instagram or Shane Moss on Instagram or totally. Mind Under Matter on Instagram. And maybe that was, maybe if they would have been following those things, it would have been, it would have bumped up just a little bit. It, it probably yeah. would have. And I will say listening to podcasts did not show up as quote unquote wasted time. And actually listening to podcasts is a wonderful strategy for how, so in that time tracking um, you folks can identify what are their least happy activities, right? Mm -hmm. Oftentimes those are chores, commuting, mm -hmm. some of work hours. Um, now chores, why is it so miserable? Well, because it feels like a big waste of time. You're like folding the laundry and you're like, oh my gosh, is this over yet? But if you bundle one strategy mm -hmm. to make that time more worth more worthwhile if you bundle that time that otherwise feels wasted but you do have to do and listen to mm -hmm. here we are then all of a sudden that hour hopefully it doesn't take you a whole hour to fold your laundry but your commute might you know that time all of a sudden feels more enriching and educational and it doesn't feel like a waste of time instead it mm -hmm. feels worthwhile so that's um, you know, one of the strategies in the book that you can get to through that initial time tracking exercise to identify, okay, what are these um, sort of unfun activities that are in our day? Mm -hmm. How do we make those hours better? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I have, I also have a lot of listeners that, that like paint 
or whatever at the same time that they're listening. Uh, man, just how lucky to be them to be listening to this right now and painting, <laughs> doing just two wonderful things at the same time. I, I, I now I'm I'm going a little over, overboard with this, but it, I well one um, I had a few things that stuck out as you've been talking. I haven't. I was very addicted to this very stupid video game um, for like nearly two years. Um, it's actually just a board game, and then but I I stopped when I moved to Raleigh. I stopped that and watching TV. I haven't watched TV in three months. And I don't miss a single thing. Sometimes I'm talking about it to friends and they talk about the new like Peaky Blinder season or something that I would normally definitely be burning through within the first week of it being out or whatever. Uh, love the show, everything else. But it's just I find myself not missing it at all. And I, I usually and that's actually I, I joke about the painting and listening to this uh, this podcast at the same time. But man, you want a double doozy is binge watch TV while also playing the stupid online board game. And you're kind of half paying attention to these two sources of passive misery. And I, I would really get myself in some ruts sometimes with yeah. that. And the research explains why. I mean, you are a multitasking isn't actually a real thing. You have to like switch your attention back and forth. Right. Um, but it's like, you're distracting yourself from something that's meant to be enjoyable. Right. So like watching mm -hmm. TV. Um, and, and then it's like, you're also distracting yourself from, you know, what was enjoyable was um, playing this game. And research looks at the role of distraction and mind wandering on our happiness. And so there's an interesting study um, by uh, Matt Killingsworth and folks. And what they did was they pinged people over the course of their day and were asked, asked, what are you doing right now? What are you thinking about right now? And how are you feeling right now? And what they found was that we are distracted. Our mind is not on what we're currently doing almost half of the time. We are thinking about something else. And, and that happens across the types of activities, <laughs> like even things that you're like, dude, you sh should be paying attention. People's minds are elsewhere. Now, as I mentioned, they also asked, how are you feeling right now? And what they found is that people are actually less happy when their mind is wandering, even if they're doing something neutral and their mind is wandering to something bad that they are happier if they're paying attention to what they're doing. Mm. So that's to say that um, there are things that we want to distract ourselves away from, like folding the laundry. There you, are ben you, you benefit from having your mind listening to something else. But when you're trying to do something that is enjoyable, presumably you're watching the TV show because it's enjoyable. Um, by distracting yourself, then you're limiting and minimizing and lessening um, your enjoyment of it. Um, and the sort of addictive power of, I like the talent of Hollywood writers is amazing mm -hmm. because 
you know, episodes end. So you have to figure out what the heck is going to happen next. Mm -hmm. And then, so you watch the next episode and if you were to stop the episode halfway through, because there's always the lull in the episode, stop it then so that you don't get sucked in as the episode is ending to, to be pulled into the next. Um, yeah, that's a good one. Um, it, here's, let me throw this at you. This drives me crazy. I'll be productive and cause I'll, I'll go, I'll go long periods of time. I'll sometimes I have this pattern. I went, I've been in a little bit of a funk. I had like three really productive months and then I had two weeks where I've been off and, um, and just haven't like, but I had a, I had a few days off when a friend came and visited. And then I was like, when, when he left, I just felt like really behind on everything I was working on. And then it, it and I like to, whenever, whenever it's, uh, it gets to be a bit much, I, what I do is I just, I'm not a roll up your sleeves type of person. I like to just avoid, I just like to <laughs> tell myself a story that I, uh, is, it'll be like, I'll do it tomorrow or whatever else. But even when, even when I start, uh, even when I'm working on something, it doesn't happen when I'm recording. And once in a while, my mind might drift off to something I have to do later or something like that. But, but I'll be you know, sending the email thing or checking off the kind of to-do list stuff and uh, making progress, feeling like I'm in a pretty good flow. And I find myself thinking about what else I should or could be doing right now, rather than just, I should just be happy that I'm accomplishing this thing that I'm accomplishing in this moment. And it's, it's a really strong pull sometimes to like, no, I need to jump and do this other thing. Instead, I need to do that. This is more of a priority. And I, I, I just, um, distract myself with productivity even sometimes. Yeah. yeah. And that is something, um, that <laughs> you are not alone, that we mm-hmm. are often, the thing that our minds are wondering to so often is, the future of like all this stuff we have to do. And so we were planning for the future. We are in this sort of constant doing mode, whether we're doing it currently, we are planning for doing it. Um, and that can pull us out of the moment. Now, when uh, we ran an experiment showing that we even do this on our break. So over, we as Americans are really bad at taking vacation. Um, we are the only industrialized country that doesn't have legally mandated vacation. Um, and even those who do get va- vacation, almost half of Americans don't take all of their paid vacation days. And one of the reasons or the reasons are that people feel like they don't have the money and they don't have the time, that they can't take the time off. Um, yet... We and they should. Vacations are associated. Taking vacation is associated with greater creativity um, and greater happiness. And people are more engaged when they return to work and more satisfied with their work. So we should be taking vacation. Um, but we don't even take the breaks that we already have in our um, sort of regular lives. Like we, most Americans get 
weekends off from work. They get two days of a break every week. But through those two days, we're doing what you're saying. It's like we're like getting through the activities. We're like in do mode and we're planning for what's next. And we aren't even experienced. We don't even experience our weekends like the break that they are. We ran a study or a couple of experiments replicating this, um, showing that if you treat your weekend like a vacation, then you enjoy the time more, the weekend more, and you return to work happier on Monday. And the experiment was as simple as that. It was conducted, we conducted it among working Americans who got the weekend off. On the Friday going into a re- this regular weekend, we gave them a set of instructions. We randomly assigned half, said, treat this weekend like a vacation. That is, to the extent possible, think in ways and behave in ways you would as though you're on vacation. To our control condition people, we said, treat this weekend like a regular weekend. To the extent possible, think and behave in ways you would on a regular weekend. And then we reconnected with, that's it. That was the only intervention On Monday, we followed up and we measured their happiness and um, looking at the change from their happiness before the um, intervention to afterwards, we saw that those who we simply told, treat your weekend like a vacation, they were happier on Monday. And then why? We looked at how they spent their time. Yes, they did shift their behavior a tiny bit activity. So they did a little bit less housework. They did a little bit less work. They ate a little more. So they spent longer, you know, at the dinner table. Um, They were more intimate. So they spent a little longer in bed. Um, But it wasn't the activities that had the effect on their happiness when they returned to work on Monday. It was the mindset. So those who were treating the weekend like a vacation were more in the moment. They were less distracted. They were sort of, instead of, they shifted from the doing mode to, you know, when you're on vacation, you're just sort of being. It's okay to take this break. And when they were doing the activity, so at the dinner table, um, more engaged and more present. And from that increased mindfulness, um, and engagement there, they enjoyed the weekend more and returned to um, work on Monday happier. So that is to say, even if you don't take the whole weekend as a break, you know, you might have to sort of carve out a couple hours, you know, to get the stuff you have to do done. Um, that making sure that you do sort of take the break. Um, when you haven't, or you could even do it on like a you know Wednesday night. That's like vacation night, um, and the mindset that that simply that reframing has is really impactful. Another thing is speaking to your point about being distracted doing a work task that is um, sort of part of you know what you're doing, and you clearly really love your work, and if you're distracted during that whole time, then you're not going to get into a flow state. And we know from the flow literature um, that getting to that state where you are fully engaged with what you're doing, 
which means you are not distracted by what else you know you have to do. You're not distracted by, oh my gosh, I'm in this time crunch um, and have to move on to something else. But getting into that fl- flow state is sort of so rewarding. Um, you don't even know it's rewarding in the moment because you're so in, in, in what you're doing that you're not like evaluating, am I happy right now? But coming out of it, you're like, oh, that felt good. And you were creative. You produced something. It's like that's where the good stuff happens. And it doesn't happen if you're distracted. And so among sort of the many um, strategies um, I give and happier hour, one of the things is like, how do you set up your you know, environment, <laughs> your sort of work, your situation so that you are more likely to get into a flow state and it is horse blinders, right? Yeah, that is absolutely <laughs> um, something that is um, I should have put as like, you know, the six bullet point. Um, but it is sort of closing out, do, removing distractions in whatever way mm-hmm. um, sort of possible. That seems easier said than done. Um, there's, it does. There's... But let me tell you, all right, to so make it a little more concrete, right? Okay. So it's some of these things are as simple as putting your phone. So my phone is actually over there. Don't I'm you dare this. tell me to put my phone down. I will put not. Put your phone away out of yeah. sight. Close out of email. Um, close the door. So like, uh, you know, a lot of folks work in um, floor plans that are sort of open, so they might not even have a door. So for that, you know, put on headphones so you're communicating to others. Don't bug me. For those who do have a door, whether they're working from home and they have to close the door to communicate family members, don't bug me. Or at the office, don't bug me. Because even that sort of, oh, I have like a quick question. That quick question, even if it only takes you two minutes to answer, pulls you out of your flow state, your train of thought. Um, and that two, two minutes has a really disruptive effect on your sort of thought process. And um, so it's things as simple as that as removing the the little, you know, distractors that are on your, like, you know, we all have other projects. So it's like even removing, you know, that pile of papers that is associated with the other project. Or for me, you know, like I keep my to-do list. Getting my to-do list out of sight so that it is sort of physically and psychologically um, removing those distractions. And as you said, it is... It is, it doesn't always happen mm-hmm. um, that you do get into flow even in those um, moments, but it certainly increases the likelihood of the possibility of it. And it's certainly a state that's worth increasing the likelihood of getting into the possibility of experiencing. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I guess, I, I guess a, a very tangible connection for flow states for me is whenever I'm doing some sort of sport which is now i'm into pickleball since the last time we talked i think when i met you first i was big into rock climbing but same similar things where it's a it's it's very mental like many sports are and uh boy it's the difference in my 
not just the quality of my pickleball game, but my happiness <laughs> while I'm playing pickleball when I have a day when that's like, that's what's on my mind. That's what I'm doing. I'm playing pickleball while I'm here versus I'm dwelling on some argument that I got in with someone on Twitter or something like that. And it's on my mind and I'm thinking of some witty comeback I'm going to have when I get home or whatever. And, and not only am I not enjoying myself as much, but I am getting like upset, but I'm, uh, I'm also playing worse. And I often have to remind myself, I often have to be like, you are here right now to have fun. (laughs) Like I have to tell myself that a lot, actually. (laughs) Oh yeah. Okay. But it's fun time right now. It's good that you do remind yourself because it's worth it, right? So, and that gets into like, as I sort of structured when you asked me about the book, it's not only about the activities that you're spending your time on. So pickleball is your your fun activity. (laughs) Like that Mm -hmm. is something that you're making the time for, but it's not just making the time for it. It is being in it while you're spending the time or else it's a waste of time and you're missing Mm -hmm. out on that potential happiness. And so even though it does, and it sounds like you're sort of practiced in reminding yourself, and I am here to sort of help folks recognize just how important it is to sort of try to remind ourselves that to pay attention to what you're doing, particularly in those that when you're doing those activities that, you know, you rate it as a 10, you know, for you, it's pickleball. Um, for me these days, it's tennis. It's so darn fun. Um, and I like it because it does sort of pull you and like it does consume your thinking. So it does sort of um, invite you into flow, but you can like, if, if my mind is somewhere else, then as you said, it's like, I will play worse and it's not as fun. And then like these fun activities, like for you, pickleball, me, tennis, not only have does you played have... tickleball, pickleball, by the way, tickleball, I called it tickleball is going to be a, a really <laughs> popular new thing. sport. <laughs> yeah. I have not played pickleball. It is, uh, and I, it well, is if a you thing. play tennis, you'll be great. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, go I'm just, I'm an evangelist for, for, for pickleball. pickleball. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it has the possibility of um, having carryover effects into how you experience subsequent activities. So if you just had a great game of pickleball, you're feeling awesome. And that ex- like awesomeness carries over into other, you know, what you do next and then what you do after that. And so it goes back to this. It's not just about quantity of time you spend in particular ways that are fun, but also the quality and the extent to which the impact of that particular activity carries over and sort of colors other activities in a positive way and therefore increases um, your overall sense of like, how awesome was my week? Well, great, because I got to play pickleball as opposed to you not even sort of feeling the benefits of that. Why mm. is pickleball, how is it different than tennis? I, I guess the the main thing, I mean, it's a smaller cord, it's a wiffle ball, and it's a paddle instead. But the but the what really differentiates it is there's um there's a five foot space between the net and a part of the court that's considered 
the kitchen that you can't go into unless the ball drops in there. And so the majority of the game is played like right up on that line. So you're mostly 10 feet away from it's a very fast reflex kind of. Kind also, of that means you can have a conversation with the people you're playing with on oh, the yeah. other no, side of the net. No, 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 thank you. No talking. Uh, no, I, I'm kidding. Yeah, no, I'd. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's 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 fun. It's it's I like I like tennis as well, but I've, I've never I've never been taken by tennis like I the the way in which I got addicted to pickleball. So I'm just just throwing it out there, just a gentle suggestion to give it a try sometime. <laughs> I um, appreciate it. But uh, so so first of all, I always I do this at the end where I say I, I sometimes I have a busy day today, so it might be a little bit of a a shorter episode but i told cassie that oh, the first time we recorded it was an hour but i've been doing hour and a half episodes we're already at 55 minutes i told you it was going to blow right by <laughs> i have so many more questions that i want to ask you so let me at least get through a few more things so that you can fix my entire life really quick um <laughs> and then i'll let you go and no pressure um here's 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 something that um, I've never bounced off of uh, anyone that would, I would love to get help with. I'm driving. I I like driving. I, 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 I like longer drives. I like like a three hour drive when I'm you know traveling for gigs or whatever else. Um, like I have a two or three hour drive. I'm listening to audiobooks. I'm thinking through things. I I started. I got an assistant um, years ago, and that was, for a while, that was just a big part of her job was just to listen to me talk on the phone about all of the projects and things that and things that needed to get done and whatnot. And I always, whenever I'm driving, I'm thinking of those things. I'm like, oh man, I'm really, I can't wait to get home and just tackle all of this stuff and i'm feeling great and energized and productive and coming up with great ideas and then i get home and a lot of times that stuff just doesn't happen at all there's a there's a real state dependence kind of memory sort of thing that that happens where where i i always just imagine as soon as i get home like oh this is going to be so exciting to get all of these to answer this email and write down this idea and finish this joke or whatever else that I'm working on, I get home and it just often doesn't work out. Um, is it because the ideas that when you get home, you're like, that actually wasn't a good idea or because mm -hmm. when you get home, you feel more limited. So I actually think that what you're picking up on is in the drives, you are in a sort of more expansive place, like the open road ahead of you. And if you're saying these are yeah. long drives, then there's like open vistas around you. Um, and there is research. Well, there's, oh, sorry. sorry. Well, there's, right. an, there's another aspect that I've known about it, which is, which is when I'm driving, that is the only thing that I have to be doing right then and i don't have any choice in the matter i need to get from this city to that city so when i'm driving i'm doing everything that i'm supposed to be doing whereas when i get home or to a place is like well 
where do I start? Which one of these things should uh, should I pick? And it's kind of like an analysis paralysis sort of yeah, situation. Yeah. Um, are you coming up with those great ideas while you're listening to the audiobook, or is there like just the quiet the drive time? Just quiet drive time too. Just something about driving. Yeah, it really does it for me. Interesting. For me, that happens on airplanes, um, and oh. I think like. <laughs> you're lucky that you don't like getting on airplanes no i i can be pretty productive on airplanes actually but i'm six four uh so no i don't like getting on airplanes ever um but it is this as you said it's sort of away from the desk and all these other sort of um demands um mm -hmm. and possibilities um but what i was going to say uh before that is that sort of expansive space around you for me i am not on airplanes i'm not actually thinking of the people immediately around me i am like looking out the window at the clouds and the sort of landscape below um and there's work that shows that awe when you are in a state of awe it makes you feel like you have more time um mm, and that's uh, really cool yeah that's the, interesting. and like things that tend to put like be all states are sort of being in nature and it's because of that expansiveness that expands uh. your sense of because like what feeling time poor is it's like these limitations right it's like having too many things that you can and should be doing not enough uh. time to do it so you feel really limited it's like a form when, of claustrophobia. Right. And then when you're driving, you're thinking more broadly and you're not feeling that sort of limitation of like all these other things I should and could be doing and not having enough time. And it's like all very constraining and confining. Um, and so what I would encourage you to do so that you don't come back and you're like, all right, well, I'm just not going to do any of it. All these wonderful ideas is before you pull in the driveway or wherever you're going, like sort of take stock of like, okay, what are all these ideas? What's the one that I'm most excited about? And decide when you're still in that expansive state so that you're sort of driven by what's not driven. You're choosing or identifying or planning based off of what's important to you as opposed to like what's sort of feasible and easy and urgent which tends to happen like as soon as you walk in the door, you're like, oh, I'm, in, you know, like I have to do all these things and it has to happen right now. And so let me just do the easy one, right? you know? Um, so I think it's, well, mm -hmm. A, I've shared research that um, explains that for you. And then a little strategy, how you might actually be able to leverage that this sort of big thinking and make it not feel so overwhelming. So just pick one of the things. But jot yeah. down the others for later. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, in terms of jotting down things, too, because um, I have a nasty habit of just I make a lot of voice notes that I never check. Never listen. Uh, <laughs> that I never listen to. I have like I won't turn in old phones because I'm worried about leaving the voice. <laughs> like maybe so that, that wonderful never... idea, that yeah, kernel yeah. of inspiration is on yeah. there. <laughs> um, but uh it, it, going back to this will transition back into the that um time tracking um one thing and I've, I've shared this a bunch of times because it it often does work for me 
when I remember to do it is that uh, to-do lists, to-do lists are really difficult for me. I, I offload a lot of it to my assistant who then tells me what to do in a more focused way. Because if I have a to-do list, every time I cross something off, I think of five more things that I need to do. So at the end of the day, no matter how productive I was, my to-do list is longer than when I started and it's just discouraging. And so I I instead keep a accomplish list, accomplishment list and just write down the things that I did. I sometimes track time as well. I've never, I've never rated. That's an interesting idea I'd like to try out. Um, but uh, that's cause I, cause that's something when you're talking about the, um, the, the time tracking, I just think well, it's just so satisfying to see what you've done, even if it's not that much, just to see what you've done as opposed to seeing what you haven't done. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And that's a good, it, it's a good um, point. And I think that, I mean, in terms of not only sort of trying to feel productive, but also feeling fulfilled. And I think that there is some value of, even if you don't track your time, um, reflect back over your week and you're like, what this week was really awesome. Like what, what was really joyful and what was fun. And like, and that reflection of, again, it's not just about what you accomplished. Sometimes those joyful moments were, um, tightly tied to something you produced or created or, um, you know, that was productive. But it's the the fact that it's really fulfilling. And I think that there so often, you know, as picking up on a lot of the themes that you've been sort of sharing about your own <laughs> mental state is that we are so focused on what's next, what we have to do, mm-hmm. this future planning, um, that rarely do we reflect and sort of not only take stock of how we're spending our time, but really sort of savor and relish in the wonderful times that we have spent not only like years ago but like this week there were some pretty awesome things you know that you did no matter how busy you are there there are some awesome moments and to the extent that we don't sort of think about them and sort of you know relish in them then you know we're sort of like that's another sort of missed opportunity for like being happier. Mm-hmm. And I'm very purposeful in the title of the book of happier hour, not mm-hmm. happy hour. Cause it's not like a on off. I'm like happier. I'm not, there's all these things that we can do these little strategies, um, that are surprisingly simple, um, that we can sort of implement throughout our days so that we feel happier, mm-hmm. um, more fulfilled, <laughs> fulfillier. Fulfillier, fulfillierness. <laughs> um, I, I'm guessing this may not be in your book, but it seems kind of relevant as you've been um, talking about happiness and some of the the thing. We're, we're talking a lot about, um, you know, where it seems like you and I are connecting a lot of, in this conversation, we've been talking a lot about happiness and productivity and accomplishment and and that is i'm 42 and that's something that i attach more uh to happiness than i did when i was younger and that's something that i i I know i've kind of seen some research on this in the in the past about kind of uh 
life lifespan development things where mm-hmm. where the things that do make us happy are do change Shifting. over yeah. time and and shift and i have a you know i have an audience of you know i'm sure there's plenty of college students listening right now and i i know that there's people in their 50s and maybe 60s and stuff listening um as well and so that's that's also it's also yeah. a little it's a it's a little tricky to have the um you know there's no there's no silver bullet exactly because that's always it's always yeah, shifting, it's shifting. The, the idea of like going to a rave or something like that is just not as appealing to me yeah. now as it was when i was in my 20s or something yeah and i have um research that speaks exactly to that so i have looked at how the way we experience happiness shifts over the course of our lives, as well as how the types of experiences that produce happiness are, uh, shifts over the course of our lives. And so in, in this work, what we have found is that in terms of the way we experience happiness, so this was a really fun study that um, our project that stemmed out of a really cool data source, which was... Um, Sepp Kempfar, he is a computer scientist and artist and genius, and he wrote this really cool computer program. It was a web crawler that they called We Feel Fine. And back in the days where blogs, you know, this was before podcasts and, you know, all that social media, um, that blogs were sort of the diary of the, the, the age where people were expressing how they were feeling and what uh, the web crawler did was, um, or we feel find it, it, it crawled the blogosphere and captured anytime someone wrote, I feel or I'm feeling, it captured that emotion. And so you could see in real time who was feeling what. And from those millions of emotions expressed, we looked at when someone said, I feel or I'm feeling happy, what were they feeling? And what we found was that it depended on the age of the person, mm. the blogger. And younger, when people were younger in their teens, 20s, um, the type of happiness they were expressing was excitement. It was the ravey, you know, excited, loud, energized happiness. As people got older, they were more likely um, to express um, calm, contented happiness. Um, And so that's even sort of the content of our happiness, the way we experience it shifts. Um, In other work, I was looking at the types of experiences that elicit happiness. And we were comparing happiness from extraordinary experiences. So life milestones, um, you know, once in a lifetime vacations, uh, concerts, like going to concerts, you know, those sort of um, cultural activities. Versus ordinary experiences that make us happy. So, you know, those simple moments with loved ones, friends, family, pets, um, enjoying a treat, uh, noticing nature. And what we found was that the extent to which those, ex- all of those are happy experiences contribute, like made people happy, depended on age. So young people were significantly more likely to experience happiness from the extraordinary experiences, the raves, than um, older people. Um, but among the older people, they were as likely to experience happiness from those ordinary experiences as the extraordinary experiences. That is, as people get older, 
they experience more happiness from those sort of simple moments that are sort of right there in our lives already. Um, And that is helpful for us to understand as we are engaging with people of different ages. It makes us more sort of compassionate and empathetic of like, oh, what you're feeling when you say you're happy and what makes you happy might indeed be different than mine. And it also makes us more compassionate towards our sort of future selves or current selves where we're like super happy on a Saturday night, um, you know, watching a movie with a glass of wine in hand instead of being like, oh my God, I remember when I was 20 and I was like, kill me if my 42 year old self has that boring life. And you're like, actually, it's not boring. Like what I'm feeling is happy. And, And then like, so you're not sort of, I'm judging yourself of like, who have I become? It's like, actually, this is what's happy for me now. So it increases that um, empathy and understanding. Um, And also for the extent to which it's driven or it is driven by recognizing, which we've already sort of touched on earlier in our conversation, recognizing that the time we have is finite, makes us as we get older, Um, But irrespective of our age, to the extent that we recognize the time that we have is finite, it makes us savor more. Notice those sort of simple, ordinary joys that are right there, such that um, we enjoy (laughs) the joy um, to the extent possible. Or, yeah. So... I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah, very, has it yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> that was a perfect answer. Um, I feel like we, we just, uh, we just got the tip of the iceberg of your book. I, I, I hope, uh, I hope listeners got a, a fun little bit of a teaser and, and check out Happier Hour, How to Beat Distraction, Expand Your Time, and Focus on What Matters Most by Cassie Holmes. Thanks so much for joining me again. Thanks so much for having me. It, yeah, was, it was great a to see you fun again. time. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Flew right by, flow state. Uh, if you want to support the show, check me out on patreon.com. Um, uh, slash Shane Moss M-A-U-S-S that's how I pay for this thing and get all these great guests and provide all this wonderful entertainment while you're driving or painting or folding your laundry or whatever you're doing and thank you so much for being such wonderful curious people we'll talk with you next week